Hello and welcome to the next episode of Harney's Expert Review Podcast for 2023. My name is Aki Korsoni Hussein and I'm Global Head of Harney's Regulatory and Tax Practice. Expert Review aims to deliver bite-sized opinions and analysis on key global governance, regulation and tax issues of importance to our clients and the wider community. In this episode, which is part two of a two-part episode on digital assets, we'll be taking a tour through current trends and innovations in the virtual assets industry, focusing on the role of decentralization, the position that the US has adopted, the European position under the markets and crypto assets regulations, and all things in between. We'll be taking the tour with our experts who joined us on part one, Brett Hillis, partner at Reed Smith in London, and our own homegrown crypto expert, Mark Piano, based in the Cayman Islands. We pick up again where we left off looking at the role of decentralization. Back over to you, Mark. Brett, curious as to your thoughts on decentralization generally, actually, and what you're seeing. I've got some thoughts which uh, I'll try to constrain when I verbalize them. Yeah, so it's really interesting you make that point. And I've seen a number of things where people have tried to use decentralization as a way almost to say there isn't the operator, there isn't the person who is performing the regulated activity. And so therefore, we're outside of the scope. You kind of hear that argument. And I think sort of when you really sort of delve into some of the sort of regulations in these spaces, that that argument typically doesn't really fly and also is unattractive to a regulator from a sort of policy perspective. I think to some extent, though, how regulation will deal with more decentralized operators, to some extent, is still sort of up for grabs. I mean, the Mika sort of says it's going to look more into decentralization kind of later on. I think it's a useful tool, but I'm sort of skeptical when people come to me and sort of try to say I'm decentralized and therefore I, in one bound, I'm outside the scope of regulation. That's not something that really flies or really operates. I agree with that. Obviously, the reality is these projects don't come into existence by happenstance. There is a concerted effort by a small group of people. The concept of decentralization still isn't defined. It's still nebulous. Same with DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. That's kind of the etymology of that was an article by Vitalik Buterin in 2014. Mm. In reality, when we look at a lot of these structures, they're more akin to what he called decentralized organizations in that article rather than decentralized autonomous organizations because DAOs are meant to be things that live on the internet that instruct humans to do that which it cannot. Whereas these DOs are more a group of people using tech to organize and they're disparate. In practice, they're general partnerships. Most of the time, if yes. you have a profit incentive, the, the law will impose a structure in the absence of one yourself. But there is, however, a impetus to decentralization, not just from a regulatory standpoint, and FATF do acknowledge the possibility of substantive decentralization such that you're not able to identify people to impose the obligations on. But it doesn't start off like that. It, it, it may get there eventually through an iterative process. And if projects are committed to this, then they will have a defensible and implementable and actionable roadmap in place. And, and in theory, the token holders who constitute the governance body will hold those founders to account. And there've been recent examples where that has been criticized. It's called decentralization theater. I think there are some projects that are on the way there or will be there, or in some cases are there. And that is genuine and defensible. You can point to that and say it really is decentralized. But what I like to ask is in an emergency, who can intervene in the protocol and on what basis? Because that is your control argument. I think there may be an emergency break to some extent, but if those powers are carefully scoped and delineated, 
and they require some sort of authority to set that up, that may be an element of control, but in very limited circumstances. And I think what a lot of clients need to be careful of is the mantra of decentralization, when in practice, looking under the hood, and the Uki Dao case is a good example of this, there isn't actually that much decentralization, uh, especially when it comes to arguments of non-custodial, for example, everyone controls their own assets. But when you look at certain arrangements, there is some degree of central control over that. So I think we always have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I'm not in any way dismissing the concept that you can achieve decentralization and that may change the regulatory analysis. But I think you need to be very, very careful, not just on the marketing side, but on the practical side as to how you present yourself and get there eventually. It's an iterative process. But at the starting point, there is a window in which there is a centralized group of people who control things. That is a point in time at which a regulator can intervene and perhaps should. If you are committing to decentralization and you have actionable processes to get there, I think that does change the position. But it, it is not a day one where decentralized someone or some group of people have made this happen. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective on it because, and I suppose there's a policy question here, but, you know, once you're, once you're within a sort of particular kind of governance structure or regulatory ambit, but you're kind of moving forward towards kind of a greater level of decentralization, will regulators be comfortable, if you like, with saying, no, you're more decentralized now, you've passed a point where actually these regulations don't apply. I mean, it will be interesting to see how they respond to these sorts of issues going forwards. I wonder whether there's sort of a middle ground here, and I've been thinking about this recently. I suspect the middle ground will be we will have a decentralized organization of people who do control a protocol, but the market has moved such that actually people don't want to interact with a non-regulated protocol because of risk. And therefore, the DAO or the community of token holders, however defined, will actually put themselves in a position where they structure so that a group of people take responsibility for the elements of that DAO, which are regulated. They structure a vehicle to be regulated, take responsibility for that and present that to a relevant regulator. So yes, we're a DAO, but we are doing things properly. This business line does need to be regulated. Here's how we propose to do it. Does that work? It'd be interesting to see how that gets structured or if that goes ahead or gains traction. But I think particularly with real world assets, which we alluded to earlier in the call, you really are dealing with traditional assets that are in regulated space. So this is where blurring the lines between traditional financial systems, I don't like to use the term tradify because it seems derogatory and there's value in tradition versus the more nuanced and novel infrastructure. There needs to be a happy medium there. So I think the absolutists on each side, everything must be regulated or everything must not be regulated, are falling away. And we're seeing a much more practical and pragmatic approach to this now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. One thing you alluded to it earlier as regards the sort of the US situation, and it may be just worth us kind of touching on that. I have some views on this as well, but I'm kind of interested in what you think in terms of the sort of the US picture and what sort of concerns this is giving to clients. And I might give a bit of perspective on kind of how we see it. Sure. This is obviously a hot topic right now, and there are strong opinions on all sides. I think we have to step back and look at what the SEC is all about. They are there to protect investors. Now, the nature of these tokens, they're relatively novel, but you will have seen in 2016, 2017, 2018, when all these white papers came out, a lot of these were promoted as investments. Buy this and you'll make money. We'll do all the work, you make the money. Now, obviously, England, Wales, Scotland, common law jurisdictions, which Cayman BVI bases its laws off, have a different approach to securities regulation 
than the US. We have a piece of primary legislation, maybe some secondary legislation with some definitions, and they're fairly confined definitions of what securities are. You either are or you're not falling in that category. The SEC has obviously the Howey test, and that's more broadly drawn and open to application to a wider variety of potential arrangements. But I do think some of them very much were securities based on how they were marketed. I think it's very hard to defend against that. What we are now seeing is a much more aggressive approach, and the SEC has confirmed this because in their view, the entire industry is built around non-compliance. I don't think that's a fair or accurate comment. I do think there are some bad actors, and we, we all have seen the consequences of bad actors which go awry. But the SEC is trying to take an approach which I, I have no doubt it genuinely believes is pursuant to its mandate. Now, there's been a lot of pushback against approach here by not just projects, but also by regulators and lawmakers in other jurisdictions. Separate to the concerns about approach, I don't think the SEC is doing anything other than what it believes to be pursuant to its mandate, and they've staffed up and are proceeding accordingly. There are some tokens which are up in the air in terms of their status and classification. NFTs, for example, which are purely collectibles or in-game assets, which are only meant to be traded within a game. I think it's going to be harder to argue that they constitute some sort of promoted investment. But I think the lack of certainty in part is due to the piecemeal approach the SEC is taking. I think a lot of people would have liked to have seen more frameworks and guidance, at least defining a digital asset and the factors they consider to be a security. Good example of this is the, uh, the Abraham Eisenberg complaint involving Mango Dow, where in that complaint, the SEC looked at the governance tokens and took the opportunity to take issue with the purported governance properties. Had that been set out in a more broader document as part of wider guidance, I think the industry as a whole would know where they stand and can proceed accordingly. So I can see why they're doing it. I think in some cases, they're very clearly taking action against very obvious securities that were marketed as such. But it's an evolutionary approach. It's very difficult to get right. But I think the concern at the moment is the change in approach is making the US less attractive for projects to either be based in or to operate in, which is a real shame because you've got a very large market with some very talented people. There is an opportunity for collaboration, but at the moment, it just seems to be that there needs to be a, uh, a mediation between industry and government and regulators that does seem to be happening on some fronts. But what we're seeing now is a very aggressive enforcement approach and the rights and wrongs of that can be debated. But I'd be curious as to your thoughts on this, Brett. I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I think a couple of other sort of contextual points, Mark. Firstly, you, you mentioned the Howey test. I think, you know, another contextual point is just in the US that you have the SEC, obviously, is securities regulator. You then have the CFTC as the commodities regulators. You almost have like these two jurisdictions where there is history and precedent of turf, for want of a better term, kind of turf wars between regulators, you have great difficulty, I think, in the US in making changes to the law in this area. There's very little that sort of seems to sort of get through Congress in this space. This is maybe a more speculative thought, but I think in the US, the kind of idea of this area is sort of in terms of free markets, libertarian kind of philosophy sort of lying behind it is, is maybe more influential in, in the US. So I think there's lots of structural reasons why it's sort of more difficult for the US to, at a legislative level, regulate in this space. Having sort of said that, I completely agree with you about the issue around sort of being able to put out broader guidance, because I think my sense is that sort of in a way, people are less concerned, I think, to an extent around an aggressive enforcement approach. 
But if there's an aggressive enforcement approach, then there needs to be clear lines so far as possible as to actually how do I comply? How do I act to get on the right side of the line? Where is that line drawn? And I think the other sort of complaint that you see from people really relates to, okay, well, if, if I need to register, you know, with the SEC for a securities offering in this industry, exactly how do I do that? What's the process that I need to follow? So I completely kind of agree with you that the kind of, I, I think the SEC is doing this for the best of reasons. I think it's unfortunate that where we end up with is sort of issues which the legislative or kind of policy issues will end up being potentially decided much more in the courts, which are maybe not quite the right sort of forum for it. It's a very fast moving picture. And I agree that aggressive enforcement is one thing, but aggressive enforcement without any clear indication other than inference that they went after these guys, so they might come after us, is not particularly helpful for clarity and certainty in the space. I think as lawyers, our job is to protect clients, wrap our arms around them, horizon scan, anticipating this uncertainty in some jurisdictions. There is certainty in other jurisdictions. It's an evolving market, and everyone who enters this space understands that risk, that things change on a very quick basis, and what worked a year ago might not work anymore. But also, and I, I constantly hammer this home on initial calls to clients, don't copy another structure just because it looks like that might work. You don't know what the risk analysis is or the legal analysis. You don't know whether they've decided to accept certain risks and not accept others. And frankly, it might also not be the right model for you. So I think this is where you have to be very aware of developments in this space and to have been in this space for a while. Not in any way saying it's close to new entrance, just there is a very steep learning curve to practice in this area. And the more perspective you have, the better you can advise clients, but nobody really knows where this is going to land. Everyone, I think, takes comfort from the fact that the amount of regulatory attention and governmental resource spent on this space shows that this is here to stay. Efforts to ban it don't really work anyway. We've seen that. It's Absolutely. an embracing of the technology, perhaps in a way which is more cautious in some jurisdictions than others. But I, I think no doubt with a nod to the fact that this is a inseparable part of, of the economy now, relatively small, potentially could grow. But I also think it's reckless to argue that because this is a new technology, then you are outside of the scope of regulation, particularly around DeFi, which is in any other asset class would be a regulated sector. So I think it needs to be carefully drawn. There's interplay between securities, anti-money laundering laws, data protection, especially if wallet addresses are pseudonymous, they could potentially constitute personal data or personally identifiable data. All sorts of other laws that apply as well, depending on what the project does. So it's a very complex field. We are seeing the US take an approach which has been criticized, and I think in some cases fairly, in some cases unfairly, but each jurisdiction is taking an approach that they feel is right for them. There's no unification here. And frankly, arguably, there shouldn't be. Each jurisdiction needs to do what it thinks is right for its own economic positioning. Quick question for you on Mika. I'm obviously aware of it and have read it, but I don't practice it because I'm based in a jurisdiction which is outside of the EU. What's the sentiment on it? Is this, is this something which is like the be-all and end-all regulatory framework for this space? Or is this kind of the, the first of many pieces of legislation that could be coming through? So I'll give it a sort of brief answer. My view on this is that it's the first of many. So I, th I think the key point is it was the first jurisdiction which kind of came up with something which broadly you could say was well thought through, predictable. So I think the reason it's maybe got such a good press is because of the contrast with the situation in the US. I think it's a good regime. I don't think... You know, I'm not sort of looking at it as the be all and end all of this. I think it's a good regime. It's sensible. We're seeing that, you know, a lot of firms are kind of looking at it and thinking it's broadly sensible. And so looking at registering within the EU, 
that's not unique. There are obviously sent other sensible regimes elsewhere. We're seeing kind of Hong Kong do some things, for example. But I, I think it's good rep largely sort of just comes from that contrast, to be honest. Yeah, and it had to be implemented in some form. They've done it on a, a kind of supranational approach as the EU does with this sort of legislation. And you're right, by contrast, the approach in the US offers more certainty, which again will help clients and projects understand where they stand. One of the key concerns we have offshore is economic substance, for example, and that was designed to stop companies from holding and exploiting IP offshore and exploiting it intra-group without paying tax. But IP becomes a big issue, and we have to look at that, even though we're not IP practitioners on a full-time basis. So I think Mika is helpful because it kind of draws a lot of these practice elements together, focusing on the activities. You can then get regulated under that framework if it applies. And then as practitioners, we then look at all the other elements of the project as well, because the regulatory part, I think people listening need to bear in mind, is an important piece of this puzzle, but it's still one piece. There are other areas to consider here. So I think to that point, Mika helps to cover the regulatory landscape, but it's not a panacea to all. It's a particularly good step when compared to sort of some other sort of places, but I'm sure other jurisdictions could could do something equally good, as good or better. Once they get their head around it. And that concludes our two-part podcast on digital assets with thanks to our experts, Brett Hillis and Mark Piano for a tour de force through some of the changing landscape of crypto regulation across the globe. We hope that you found today's podcast, the second part of this two-part, helpful and we look forward to delivering a further episode of expert review after the summer break.